You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Yet, my name is David. I'm the church planning resident here, but I wear a lot of hats, so you may have seen me playing cajon or I may be running around doing any myriad of sorts of things, uh, but it is my pleasure It is my honor to bring the word, to bring the message this morning uh, from the book of John. Now, we're in this I Am series, this I Am series um, through the book of John, and this comes from the seven metaphorical statements that Jesus makes of himself in the book of John. There are seven marked I Am statements that Jesus uses metaphorical statements with eternal implications. And that is this, that is the series, is that we're going to look at all of these uh, metaphorical statements from Jesus, these I am statements. Today is I am the bread of life. Now Cohen started this for us last week, and this isn't actually considered one of the official I am statements, though it is an I am statement, it's just not metaphorical. And this is when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And this was Jesus' claim of deity. This is him saying, I am not just a teacher. I am not just a rabbi. This is Jesus saying, I am not just a good moral person or a prophet, but I am God. And the crowd at the time thought this to be such heresy, they picked up stones to kill him. And he gets away. He hides away. It's not his time yet. And so this I Am series is exploring this truth. And we're going to take Jesus at his word. When he said, I am Before Abraham was, I am God, essentially, we're taking him at his word. So we're going to study these things in belief that he is God, and today he is, we believe, the bread of life. So I am the bread of life. Uh, There's a lot of scripture in here, if you didn't notice from the 18 verses, however many verses there were at at the beginning of this. Um, There's a lot of scripture that we're going to get through today. That's on purpose. That's, uh, That's a good thing. Scripture's words are much more important than mine. Uh, You've probably heard me say this before, but scripture's words are much more important than mine. If my words don't go with you today, but but Jesus' words go with you today, we'll count that as a win. That'll be good, because my words are going to fade away. They're like margin, they're really not important. Like it's just, it's just David up here, but the word of God will never fade away. And so we'll be productive today to look at uh, scripture together and learn some lessons from what Jesus has to say about I am the bread of life. So there's three lessons we're going to learn today. First is, we're going to learn about manna in the wilderness and West Virginia. Anybody, anybody in West Virginia? Take me home. Take me home. There we go. Country roads. Manna in the wilderness and West Virginia. We're going to talk about the bread of life and Bilbo Baggins. Lord of the Rings. There we go. Come on. And then cultivating hunger and storytelling. These are our three lessons we're going to learn today. Manna, the bread of life, cultivating hunger, and some of these other things in there as well. I'm going to pray that this, is, that sermon, this sermon is honoring to God, and then we will begin. So let's, let's pray that together. King, we are, uh, we are here together, and we, uh, we pray that this gathering is something that is honoring to you, God. It is, um, it's a beautiful thing that you have called yourself the bread of life, and I pray that we, uh, we grapple with this, we reckon with this well today. God, I pray that this whole gathering is something that's honoring to you. Um, God, anything that is of ourselves, anything that would be self-glorifying, anything that would be selfish, um, I pray 
that it just looks obviously foolish. I pray that it just falls flat um, in front of everyone here today. But God, anything that you have to say to your people, I pray that you move our hearts. I pray that you, that you leave us forever changed today. And so God, we do this because you have loved us first. So we follow you. You're the bread of life, and we believe that. So um, teach us, feed us today. We do this uh, all because you have loved us first. And all God's people said, amen and amen, manna in the wilderness and West Virginia. It's in there. You didn't know, but scripture teaches specifically. I'm kidding. Look at there. Context of the scripture is incredibly important. So the context of the scripture is before what Charlie read for us, there was a miraculous event that happened. You can check my work, go back to the top of chapter six, and you'll see this, is Jesus had been teaching, and there's this crowd that accrued as he was teaching, which is what happens when you are the most masterful teacher who has ever lived. If you're, if you're God and you're teaching, then you're gonna accrue a crowd. And so this crowd is following him, learning from him and going back and forth with him, and eventually they find themselves traveling through the wilderness, uh, traveling through a pretty deserted place, and there's not enough food. And uh, it becomes apparent to the disciples that they're all going to starve out there. And so they say, Jesus, send these people home. They have to get food. Uh, we're, we're too far out here. And Jesus takes five loaves of bread, two fish, and he feeds the 5,000. Or there were 5,000 men in the audience, so even more. He, he feeds miraculously more than 5,000 people. And in that moment, they desired to make Jesus king. This crowd following him desired to make Jesus king. So they tried to seize him. Force him, to, force him to be king, and he escapes. You can check my work. This is the top of John 6. So this is the context. Jesus' disciples go across the sea. Jesus follows later on foot, if you catch what I'm saying. He follows later on foot. Um, he's on the other side of the sea, and that's when the crowd finally catches up with him, and they're talking with him in the synagogue. This is the scripture that we read today. It says this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe the one he has sent. Verse 30, what sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? The gall on this crowd, come on, as if they haven't seen a miracle already. What are you going to perform? Verse 31, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So there's this crowd of learners. And this is a typical scene that we see in the synagogue. This is a typical scene that we would see discussing Torah, discussing the law of God. Is that it wouldn't just be a monologue, kind of like what we have in lectures, at, in classes. Like, I pray those are done for you by now, please. But those lectures that just go on and on. Um, that this, this teaching of Torah wouldn't look like this. I mean, it wouldn't look like what I'm doing right now, which is much like one person speaking and everybody quiet listening. It would have been much, it would have been much more like a dialogue of, of a rabbi kicking off a conversation and others engaging, others responding. So this is a typical scene. They're not being rude yet, but they, this is a typical scene and they're gonna, go, uh, they're gonna go back and forth and they bring up the liberation from Israel. They say, you did this thing with bread, 
But there was a man who made bread rain from heaven. His name was Moses. Now, this is, this is a typical, this is a normal everyday history story for Israel. It's the inception of Israel uh, from their liberation from Egypt. This is, a, this is a very famous story. If you've heard of Moses, right? Let my people go. There's a little song and dance that goes to it as well. But there's, uh, there is this epic in the book of Exodus. If you have not read the book of Exodus, I, I mean, you simply must. It's, it's pretty much the beginning is a story of Yahweh going into combat with Egyptian gods and Yahweh going into combat with Pharaoh in a lot of ways with Egyptian idols. And so we see this back and forth of, of Yahweh freeing his people in epic proportions. There's plagues, there's hail. It's a, it's a wild, wild read. Eventually, they are led out into the wilderness. They're freed. Yahweh has freed them. And it doesn't take too long before they're out there. They run out of resources, and they're hungry. And this is the passage in Exodus when manna is sent to them. It says this, The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, so it's been a month and a half, on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and his brother Aaron in the wilderness. So we're off to a good start. They're grumbling. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. How sad is this? I wish that we would have died with our bellies full as slaves in Egypt than be out here with you, Yahweh, and hungry. Short memories. So it continues. Instead, their complaint, their grumbling continues. You brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. And God is so gracious that this is his response. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Because the seventh day is the Sabbath. They can't work. So now, as this crowd has brought up this, his, this history story, they brought up Moses and manna in the wilderness, Jesus sees the irony in this. And I hope you do too. Jesus sees the irony in this. Israel had been freed from Egypt. They're out in the wilderness, and they run out of resources. The crowd, they follow Jesus into this deserted place. They start to get hungry. They run out of resources. In the middle of this, Yahweh is in their midst. They should, not have need, they should not have feared a thing because Yahweh is with Israel in the wilderness. In the same way, Jesus is standing in the midst of them. Yahweh provides miraculous food, bread from heaven. Jesus provides miraculous food from five loaves, five loaves of bread, two fish. And the sad truth is that the comparison doesn't stop there, is that even though Israel had been provided for in the wilderness time and time again, they will eventually abandon Yahweh again and again to different idols, different peoples, different gods. Eventually, Jesus too will be abandoned. This is, what the, this is how our scripture ends. It's past our scripture. And it says this, From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. His teaching was too hard. It was too difficult. They ate his bread and then they abandoned him. And eventually, everyone will abandon him 
when he's hanging on a cross. So this reminds me of West Virginia. We'll get there. This, this connects, I promise. This reminds me of, of West Virginia. It's my mom grew up in a small coal mining town in West Virginia. It's called Oceana. No, you haven't heard of it. It's, it's close to Beckley, West Virginia, right? So that's, uh, that's where she grew up, in this coal mining town in Oceana. And my grandmother lived there her whole life. Um, she lived through the Depression. She lived in this coal mining town. And as the economy with coal goes up and down, then so does that town. That town's economy would also just skyrocket, and then it would all fall and plummet. And so it was a tough area that's, that my grandmother uh, raised my mother in. And the last parts of my life that I knew her is that she was, she was diagnosed with some sort of kidney failure, and she lived on dialysis, if you medical professionals know. She lived on dialysis for 16 years, and it's a process that just wipes all the energy out of you. You're just exhausted. So this woman, my grandmother, was just a picture of resiliency and grace, and my mom would always go back and forth to take care of her as much as she could, and so she was, she was often doing these back and forths, and on her way, she would be thinking of her kids, and so she'd stop at Cracker Barrel, where there's treats, and there's a, cor there's a corner full of toys, and she would bring us something small. And this was happening enough that we began to expect that when she showed up, she'd probably have something for us from Cracker Barrel. This was, this was the truth. We were very young. So one time, she shows up. It's been an especially emotional weekend with my grandmother. She shows up, and we come running downstairs, and rather than greeting her, and telling her we love her, we're so glad you're here, we stopped short and we said, did you bring us anything? And this is marking for me, because I remember watching her face fall. After this emotional weekend, I remember seeing my young self hurt my mother's feelings. And right there in front of me, it taught me a lesson. What was I focused on? I was so focused on what was in my mom's hands that I missed the presence of my mom standing right in front of me. Do you see how this connects? Israel in the wilderness was so ready to see things from God's hands, they missed the fact that Yahweh was in their midst. Jesus in the synagogue, Jesus in, in this deserted place, they are focused on what is in his hands, not, what's is, not what his presence can bring. Now, was manna a bad thing? Was manna from heaven, was this a bad thing? No, it's beautiful, miraculous. Was Miraculous food from Jesus, was this a bad thing? No, it's a beautiful story to tell. An incredible story of God's power and his provision. But the lesson is this. In our discipleship of Jesus, we must continually distinguish where we desire Jesus and where we sinfully only desire his gifts. Where we desire what is in God's hand, but if we don't desire God himself. This is where the hard work begins, church. This is not easy, but this is the work that we must do. Are there some of God's good things in your life? Are there neutral things, or are there even good things in your life that are gifts from God, but they could be damaging your spiritual maturity? Think through this. Neutral or even worse things that become distractions at best, where your time is taken from you faster than you think, or your time is given to something that really goes to nothing, or at worst, idols that steal our affections, that steal our devotions, and that become the source um, and the receptor of our praise. We have to do this hard work. Now let's start, let's start with me. I'll, I will go first. 
for me, this was social media. Now, I mean, I don't know how it happened, but I'd be scrolling and then I'd lose like hours. Like it would happen so fast. And that's like one thing, if it's leisure time, it's another if you're at work, right? You're gonna get, you're gonna run into some issues pretty quick. You're, what is it called now, doom scrolling? Or you just never, like you never quit. Like the, the feed can always, always refresh. It's, there's always something to be seen. Um, I was a victim in a lot of ways to my own self doom scrolling as I would lose time at work. I would lose time with my wife over this scrolling as if that would be more important than, than my wife sitting right next to me. And then I would, uh, I would eventually even lose my leisure time. Times where I actually had hobbies and things I really enjoyed, I would lose it to this doom scrolling. And so for me, it had to be discarded. It had to go. Now, social media is, is not a bad thing. If you tried to if you tried to follow me on Instagram, I'm sorry, you're never getting that follow back. Like, it's the w your request lives there and it is going to die there because I'm never getting on Instagram again. I have a Pinterest now. If you want to join my Pinterest, I have, that's right, that's right. Uh, so I have a Pinterest now. If you'd like to follow my new board, it's Men's Summer Fashion. So I have, uh, now I don't want to teach this the wrong way because we talk, we talk a lot up here. About, uh, about the dangers of social media, the dangers of technology, the dangers of consumerism, right? We talk a lot about, uh, uh, about that up here. And so I don't want to give you this example and say David is holier for having, for having gotten rid of social media and you ought to too. That's not what I'm saying, right? Go follow GC Instagram, right? There's, there's, a, there's an Instagram where we, do, where we do announcements. Social media is not bad. Um, I'm not holier for having gotten rid of it. I could not handle it. That's the truth. It's a neutral thing in the right hands. It's a good thing. It does good stuff. I can't handle it, so I had to discard it. That, this is the truth for me. John Piper helps me make my point, and he's smarter than I am. And he says this, the greatest enemy of a hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. This is from John Piper. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. Read that carefully. It's the enemy of hunger for God. Like, are you hungry for God? It is not the banquet of the wicked that doles our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every single night. For all, that the, for all the ill that Satan can do, when, do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. He is talking about a parable in the book of Luke. Good things, and people say no to the kingdom of heaven. The greatest, adverse, excuse me, the greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts, what is in his hands. And the most deadly appetites are not the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. So John Piper is saying, you can see poison, and everybody can see what poison is. None of, nobody is deceived as to thinking what poison is. If you eat it, you will die. But you can also die on apple pie if you, if you uh, refuse to give it up. So this is the work. What good things are in your life, or even neutral things are in your life, are stealing your appetite for the Lord? What are these things? You must be honest with yourself. You probably do know what they are. If we are able to admit them to ourselves, we probably do know what they are. And if you really can think of nothing, go ask your best friend, right? Go ask your spouse, go ask your family, if that, if that applies to you. They can help you know. They can let you know where your, uh, where your appetite for God is being stolen. So let's keep going. Uh, let's talk about the bread of life 
and Bilbo Baggins. The bread of life and Bilbo Baggins. Uh, Our scripture, which is so important, says this. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life. There it is. Verse 35. I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, No one comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I've told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. We're going to skip to verse 47. It says, truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. Verse 48, he doubles down. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I am the bread of life. So this is the first I am statement in the book of John. There are two things that we need to identify here. The first thing is that the crowd is asking for this new bread, but they're thinking on a completely different plane than Jesus, right? This is like what Cohen taught last week, that as he's in the, in the midst of this dialogue that turns into an argument uh, with the Pharisees, they're thinking on the wrong plane of existence. Jesus's, Jesus' thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our, th- than our ways. And this is perfectly displayed here is that the crowd is asking for new bread, but they're not thinking of the bread that Jesus has. Um, as their reference to Moses goes, they not only want to be fed like for manna, but Moses had also led them out in liberation from Egypt. And here they want a new political status quo as well. They want to be free from Rome. And so they're asking Jesus, are you going to be like Moses? Are you going to give us bread from heaven? Are you going to lead us away from our captors? They're asking these things, and Jesus is saying, no, I don't want to feed your belly. I want to feed your soul. He's saying, no, I don't want to free you from Rome. I want to free you from sin and from death. They are on a different level of thinking. That's the first thing that we have to identify. The second one is that the crowd wanted a new commandment to follow. They wanted a new and, and, and a better understanding of how to follow the Torah, how to follow God's commandments that they might know how to follow God. Now, this is, this is easily skipped if, you, um, if you're not paying attention, but verse 28 and 29, it says this. What can we do to perform the works of God? Now, I hate that word, right? What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe, that you believe in the one he has sent. So they're asking for a new commandment, and Jesus is saying there is no new commandments. There is no way to perform the works of God. You must believe in me. Now, church, this is the gospel. I mean, this is what we teach every Sunday, hopefully until this, until this place is done, right? So this is, the, this is the truth of the gospel, is that there is not work that we need to do. There's not work that we need to perform in order to find God, but rather we must just believe in his son. It is not salvation by works. It is salvation by grace. So this is the lesson, and it's a simple one, but it's always profound. The bread of life has been offered to anyone. Indeed, it is offered to everyone. The bread of life has been offered to anyone. Indeed, it has been offered to everyone. Now, this is the gospel, and if we're not, if we're, 
not careful enough, it can go stale on us, and it never should. It never should. The fact that the king of heaven instigated a relationship with us should never be lost on us. It is profound, and really, it makes very little sense other than that he called us worthy of his adoration. And this is what started our relationship with him. John Stott says this about the gospel. He says, many people visualize a God who sits comfortably on a distant throne, remote, aloof, uninterested, and indifferent to the needs of mortals, until, it may be, their importunate cries badger him into taking action on their behalf. Such a view is false to the point of blasphemy. So John Stott's not holding back. It's false to the point of blasphemy. The Bible reveals a God who, long before it even occurs to man to turn to God, while man is still shrouded in darkness and sunk in sin, takes the initiative. He rises from the throne, lays aside his glory, and stoops to, stoops to seek until he finds us. This is the gospel. This is your story, my story, and it's enough for us to gather around and sing worship and listen to teaching about the bread of life. This is our story. Paul agrees with this. Paul, a New Testament writer who used to be a murderer of Christians, he himself had a relationship instigated by Jesus. It was a little bit more clearly happening in Acts where he was in the midst of chasing after Christians. Jesus instigated a relationship with him and saved him. He writes about it later. These are my favorite verses. It says this, Ephesians 2. It says, We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, and those are powerful words, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. You are saved by what? You are not saved by works. You are saved by grace. This is the gospel, and it's beautiful every time. So let's talk about Bilbo Baggins, because this reminds me a lot about the Lord of the Rings and Bilbo Baggins. Has anybody read The Hobbit? Has anybody read The Hobbit? Not enough of you. Come on. So let's, let's get on that. Homework for tonight. Um, Bilbo Baggins has, has a great illustration for that, and if you don't like it, um, you can preach the next sermon. So you can, you can make your own illustrations. Bilbo Baggins um, goes on this incredible adventure but he was not seeking adventure at the beginning. In fact, he hated the idea of, of adventure in the beginning. And so instead, Gandalf the wizard, right? It's fantasy fiction. Hang in here with me. So Gandalf the wizard instigates a relationship with him and sends him on an adventure of a lifetime. And if Bilbo had not, uh, if Bilbo had been in charge of instigating the relationship, it would have never happened. But instead, Gandalf instigates the relationship and we see something beautiful. In fact, this is Bilbo's first uh, first words to Gandalf when it comes to adventures. He says this, we are plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things make you late for dinner. I can't think what anybody sees in them, those adventures, said our Mr. Baggins and stuck one thumb behind his braces and blew out another even bigger smoke ring. Then he took out his morning letters and began to read, pretending to take no more notice of the old man, Gandalf. He had decided that he was not quite his sort and he wanted him to go away. But the old man did not move. 
he stood leaning on a stick and gazing at the hobbit without saying anything till Bilbo got quite uncomfortable and even a little cross. Good morning, he said at last. We don't want any adventure here, thank you. You might try over the hill or across the water. By this, he meant that the conversation was at an end. And so Bilbo, in the, his most polite ways, says, we want no adventure here. Thank you very much, Gandalf. You can go ahead and leave. Now this adventure, again, was an adventure of the lifetime. He meets elves face to face. He rides on giant eagles, right? This is fantasy fiction. He, he made lifetime friends in a cohort of dwarves, as you do. He came face to face with a dragon, not to mention his share of dwarven treasure, and all of this because he did, in fact, go on that adventure of a lifetime. Now, Bilbo's adventure comes to an end, but we are on a different adventure ourselves. We're on an adventure as we follow behind Jesus, and we did not instigate this adventure. We did not instigate this relationship. We did not start it. It's all, it's all thanks to Jesus that we get to go on this adventure of a lifetime. And it means a relationship with God, who is the highest king of heaven. It means a relationship with his church, where we weep with those who weep, and we mourn with those who mourn, and we celebrate with those who are celebrating, who we may have never known before. We see people sent off to be married, and they hold to one another for the rest of their lives. We see people making sacrifices for the good of one another and for the good of the kingdom of heaven. We will make beautiful friends who we had never expected to meet before. And sometimes we will have to say goodbye to those friends much earlier than we had expected. It is the sweetest, most wild adventure of a lifetime, and it is offered to you for free. This is the bread of life. This adventure of a lifetime. Now, our adventure, it ends like this. This is Revelation, the last book in the Bible. This is John, who we've been studying and reading his words already, but he's having a vision of heaven. He's having a vision of the throne. And it says this, Revelation 7. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is a big scene. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, because I have no idea. This is a vision. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The ones seated on the throne will shelter them. Jesus will shelter them. For this reason, um, that, sorry, verse 16, they will no longer hunger, they will no longer thirst, the sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the end of our adventure. And it's a beautiful end. Now, some of you are here, and your faith, your walk behind Jesus, may not feel so much like an adventure right now with that, with that optimistic spin. Your, your faith may feel weary. Your faith may feel tired. Let this be a breath of fresh air to you 
that our story ends, our adventure ends in the throne room with our God watching, providing over us and us glorifying in that presence. This is a beautiful picture of heaven. Now, if you're here and you don't follow Jesus, all of this probably sounds a little bit wild. And the only thing I could say is I know you have to take everything I say with a grain of salt. I totally get that. You can't, you don't know exactly what I have to say. I'm a, I'm a pastor, so I'm, I'm supposed to be teaching these things. Um, and it was not always the case. So read Jesus' adventures for yourself. They're incredible. They're captivating. They're what has, have convinced me and so many others in this room that he is worth following for the rest of our lives. I would prompt you, just read what Jesus has to say in his adventures. So the bread of life is offered to anyone. In fact, it's offered to everyone right now. Now let's talk about cultivating hunger and storytelling. Let's read the scripture together. It says, At that, the Jews argued among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like your manna and your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now let's talk about cultivating hunger. This is an odd thing, and if this scripture is difficult to understand about eating the flesh of God and drinking his blood, if it's difficult to understand now, it would have been wildly offensive to understand this when Jesus taught it. The Jewish crowd listening wasn't allowed to eat very many meats, and they were certainly weren't allowed to eat any meat that still had blood in it. And here Jesus is inviting them to eat of his own flesh and to drink of his blood. It's a difficult teaching. It's, it's a wonder why so many people walked away. Here we can even admit it's a little odd. We can say this is a little bit of a strange teaching. What do we do with this? But the idea of consuming shouldn't be new to us. The idea of, of taking in or eating or consuming um, should not be new, new to us. This is from the commentator Don Carson. Uh, he said, he said and teaches this, like we consume content, don't we? I mean, like we take in content faster than anybody else these days. We binge TV shows, like binge eating, probably whole seasons at a time. I know, I get it. If it's advertising or if it's gossip or whatever it might be, we eat it up, right? There's that term of eating it up. We chew on ideas, eventually like we swallow them, like the idea of, of a truth is a hard pill to swallow. So we have all of these, these metaphors, these idioms of us eating, taking in truth. So this is the lesson. If Jesus, if Jesus is the source of our spiritual growth, we must consume him regularly, right? Take him in. We must consume him regularly and cultivate hunger for more, always. Cultivate hunger for more. So how do we cultivate hunger for Jesus? A couple practical things. Um, and we'll be done. The first is, we've already talked about this, identify what steals your appetite for God. This is hard work. Go ask your best friend, go ask your spouse, go ask your family. Hopefully they'll let you know gently what is stealing your appetite uh, for the Lord. The second one 
And this one's incredibly important. It's fasting. We talk about it often, and I don't think we explain it quite enough. But fasting is discarded often because it seems archaic. It seems old or odd. It seems maybe a little too carnal to be a spiritual ritual, to be a spiritual discipline. But fasting does an incredible work to teach us. Now, it's a Christian belief that our physical bodies and our spiritual bodies are so closely knit that even at the end of all things, when the resurrection happens, that they will both be resurrected, both body and spirit, that the two are so, that are tied so closely together. So there are times where we need to teach our spirit something using our body. Now, navigate this with wisdom. If you are somebody who has a difficult past with food, right, that is not lost on us. If you are somebody who's diabetic or has some issues with food, then fasting probably isn't for you. There are other, there are other self-denial habits that can teach you, but church, fasting from food does a wonder to teach your spirits. When you're, when you're hungry, and yet you're teaching your spirits, I'm hungry for food, I'm hungry for bread, but I want to be hungry for something more. I want to be hungry for something deeper that our spirit learns quickly. C.S. Lewis says this, you and I have the need of the strongest spell that could be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness. Fasting does this. The longer that we are in the world, we're not supposed to be of the world, we need some sort of spell, as C.S. Lewis calls it, to remove the lens of worldliness from us, and fasting just does just that. It shows us reality. It teaches us. So find what it is that robs your spiritual appetite. Let's fast together. The next one is mutual accountability. Now this one's one of my favorites because I'm an inexhaustible extrovert. I can't, I can't be beat. Um, and there is, there is so much science, so much to go behind the fact that work or projects or dieting or exercise or whatever it may be, when done in groups, it's more consistent, it's more effective, and get this, it's even more enjoyable. This is the church. We're supposed to do these activities with one another. So find your friends here and fast together. Pray together, worship together. You may do it more consistently. Uh, you may learn to do it in new and fresh ways, and you may find it more enjoyable. So fast, identify what's to your uh, appetite for God. Let's have mutual accountability. And finally, and my favorite, is storytelling. Paul Gold says this, and I'll just steal his words today. It says, many, if not all, good stories are good precisely because they point us to the one true story of the world, the gospel. In the gospel, as in the very best fairy stories, we find what we long for, a magical world, life eternal, love unbounded, the defeat of evil, and a happy ending. And all good stories point us to Jesus, even if they do so indirectly. We are drawn to some stories over others because we intuit that they reflect reality, that they are somehow connected to another ongoing story, the story of the kingdom of heaven. Now, with good stories, whether that be beautiful movies or good literature, you may find in yourself this kind of hunger, a hunger that's ready to be rid of evil, 
a hunger that's ready for, for true love, a hunger that's ready for a community that doesn't go away, maybe it might be a hunger for heaven. And these stories teach us and cut through times when rhetorical arguments and talking heads during sermons, they don't do enough, but these stories can do wonders. The trick is, is that everyone here has a story. Everyone here has a story in which they have seen, they've experienced the bread of life. And the hunger for God may just come from your story. It's true that maybe your neighbor needs your story to cultivate that hunger for God. Now, all of our stories, all of our stories intersect together in the church, but we know we are not the protagonist of this story, but it's Jesus. And we follow him because he has given the bread of life to us. He has given us uh, his body and his blood so that we may be in relationship with him. And as our stories intertwine with his and as our stories intertwine with one another, let's tell good stories of his grace. Let's pray together. King, we pray in thanks that you have invited us into your story, that you have taken care of us, that you have loved us, and God, that we are affected by, by your story. So God, I just pray um, that you would move us today, that you would help us to to recognize where we are consuming things that are harmful to us, consuming things that are distracting us. And God, let us always be consuming more of you. So God, we love you. We do this because you have loved us first. We need your help, so be with us. And it's in your name that we pray. All God's people said, amen. At this time, we're going to take the bread and the cup. Um, so I'm gonna give you about 30 seconds of reflection and as you, as you sit in silence, think of the bread of life and think of what it is that Jesus